Hey folks, it's Marvin Cash, the host of The Articulate Fly. And on this episode, I'm joined by Joe Mahler. Joe shares his fly fishing journey from fishing farm ponds in the Midwest as a kid to his career as an illustrator, an outdoor writer, and a teaching guide. But before we move on to the interview, just a couple of housekeeping items. If you like the podcast, please subscribe in the podcatcher of your choice and leave us a review. It would really help us out. And a shout out to this episode's sponsor. This episode's brought to you by our friends at the Bristol Bay Defense Fund. With the decision on the Pebble Mine's most critical federal permit application due later this year, 2020 is an important turning point in this long-running saga. To help this diverse coalition continue its efforts to protect one of the world's largest wild salmon runs and all of its economic, cultural, and ecological benefits, please visit www.bristolbaydefensefund.com and donate today. Now, on to our interview. Well, welcome to the Articulate Fly, Joe. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to our chat, and we have a tradition on the Articulate Fly. I always ask all of my guests to share their earliest fishing memory. You know, mine is a is a very clear memory. On my third or fourth birthday when I was uh, uh, back in Indiana, and my uncle Ralph got me a, a Zebco uh, small rod and reel for uh, for my birthday present, and it uh, we had a picnic. And I, it, we were in a small pond in Spencer, Indiana. I remember him. Uh, it was a top water experience. So he got the lawnmower out and cut the edge of the grass. And I remember all the grasshoppers and stuff going in the water and the fish coming up, boiling at him. I remember my uncle saying, just drop it in the water. And I did. And the bobber went down and I have a picture on my wall of what I, what's the, probably a 14 or a 15 inch bass. Yeah, that's awesome. My uh, my first bass was on a cane pole on the bicentennial, but it was about twelve inches if you stood on it uh, to make it uh, the limit. Right. It, and so, when did you move to the dark side of fly fishing? Well, when I was when I was twelve years old, uh, I rem- I don't know why. I think I'd seen the American Sportsman or something, and and I saw somebody fly fishing. For whatever reason, that caught my attention, and um, we had a, a guy in the neighborhood who was. Uh, uh, kind of a jack of all trades, knew about everything. And, uh, I remember blurting out that, you know, I, I want to fly fish. And I, I remember him saying, you could never do that because, you know, you don't have the patience. And since I've learned that it's the perfect thing for somebody who doesn't have patience because you're constantly moving. And I, you know, I was fidgety then I'm fidgety now. And, uh, and it's, it's always been the perfect, perfect therapy for me. That's great. And who are some of the folks that, uh, mentored you on your fly fishing journey? You know, uh, my uncle Ralph and and my mom, uh, they were uh, they were both they would they would fish in a in a mud puddle. It just didn't matter. So neither one of them really fly fished. Um, but from an early age, you know, in Indiana, you know, if there was a if there was a, a farm pond someplace, you know, my mom could figure out how to how to get permission to get on it. Uh, she knew most every farmer. So uh, from there, you know, I'm gosh, the Indianapolis Flycasters had so many great people that I, I got to meet and, uh, a fellow named Charlie Weidman, who was a, a, a farmer. He and I used to spend a lot of time hitting those farm ponds and that's, uh, in, in, even more so than the technique and the, and the learning how to cast for me, the whole thing was the attitude of fly fishing. That's, that's what the mentors to me that I think, um, you know, Charlie Weidman, there was a fellow named Doc Asher who was, you know, there was, it was just such a, a nice gentleman sport and it was, it was just the things that went with fly fishing that have always attracted me as much as the mechanics. 
very neat. And I know you're an illustrator by trade. Was art always a part of your life as well? It, it was in in the in the time before video games and stuff. My my father was a sign painter and a policeman, and uh, you know when the power would go out or what we did in the evening was sit around with uh, with paper and draw, and uh, that's that's what we did when we were kids, and we just drew and drew and drew. Um, when you say art, I would say I would I would say illustration has been you know we would illustrate stories or make up stories and draw the characters and that sort of thing. To me, that's not really art. You know, I, I'm not a painter or, a, you know, that sort of thing. If I had a day off, I wouldn't, I wouldn't paint a picture. I'd go fishing. And um, so for me, illustration has always been, um, I, I've always thought of it like a, a language, just like Spanish or French or something. And it's just another way to communicate things. So without something to communicate, I'm not sure I would pick up a pencil. Got it. And did you kind of, as you graduated from the dinner table uh, after dinner as a kid, did you have formal uh, training to illustrate or did were you self-taught? I, I didn't. Uh, like I said, when, you know, I just grew up with, and I used to help my dad paint signs and that sort of stuff. So I had some, I had some real nuts and bolts training by the time it was time to go into the, the workforce. And uh, I got a very lucky break and got an internship at a large department store, which was downtown Indianapolis called Blocks. And I worked as, uh, in the advertising department. So, uh, that was when I was a senior in high school, I'd work half days there and go, uh, it was called a co-op program. And, uh, I would go to school half days and go to work in advertising the other half. So, uh, by the time I got done with that, it had always, it had, uh, been a, a real fast paced, you know, I understood how work gets done and, and how it needs to get done and how quickly it needs to get done. So um, I just really uh, didn't go to school after that. Got it. And, you know, anyone in the fly fishing world that sees a, an illustration instantly knows it's one of yours. You have a very distinct style. How did that develop? That that developed from doing storyboards over the years. I don't know if you're familiar with, with storyboards, but in TV commercials, um, you know, or, or movies or something like that, you know, they're all, they're a series of sketches are done to communicate, um, you know, a, a camera move or, you know, or something. Those, those pictures that you do, then maybe in a 30 second spot, maybe there'll be a dozen of them. They have to communicate very clearly what's going on and what the next move is. And, um, and so that's what it, that's what it was for me. Um, I started doing that at pretty, pretty early. My, my very first job, I did, uh, did the pictures for the insides of televisions for newspaper ads. So if it was seasonal, I would draw skiers inside the little, you know, the clip art for the, for the televisions. And, um, so it, it, everything for me always had to be very clear, uh, what was going on or, you know, to demonstrate a certain concept or, um, something very specific. I love doing the the casting illustrations are really challenging um, because you're showing movement. You're showing some really, really complex things. Um, and so, you know, in three or four, you know, showing movement in illustration to me is is probably the most interesting and most challenging. And how do you break that down to figure out kind of which kind of snapshots of the motion you want to capture? Um a couple of different ways, you know, sometimes I'll, I'll go out and shoot, uh, you know, have my, have my wife shoot some cell phone videos and I'll watch it and watch it and watch it. And, 
um, you know, uh, you know, follow it very closely and work from that. Um, sometimes it's just a, it, it's just something that I want to, that I want to demonstrate a, an idea. And, and so maybe that's, uh, a little bit looser, a little more dramatic, maybe. Yeah. Got it. And you mentioned at the beginning of the interview that you're a Hoosier. How did you end up in Southwest Florida? Uh, my wife told me that we were moving here uh, is, is how that happened. So we were, I'd taken a job up in uh, Wisconsin for, as a creative director at an ad agency for a couple of years. And we were sitting in Applebee's with 13 below temperatures and, um, I may have said, let's move to Florida, but I'm not, I, I can't be sure. I, all I know is the next day that most of our belongings were on eBay and there was a truck scheduled to move us to Southwest Florida. My, my in-laws lived down here and, and, uh, so we were, uh, you know, we wanted to be a little closer to them as well. Truth of the matter is I had, I had no, no interest in moving down here because I didn't, you know, what I had always seen was strip malls and, uh, you know, and, and, and golf courses. And I don't, really spend much time in either one but when i got down here i just found this paradise of you know just just endless you know places to fish and it's interesting too because you know you're super close obviously to salt water but you still prefer to fish for freshwater species which keeps bringing you back to the bass and the bluegill i think the giggles i think the giggles um you know i it's it's just happy fishing um I would, I would rather go out and, you know, when I take somebody out bluegill fishing or bass fishing, it's just fun. It's refreshing, um, uh, you know, in saltwater, which is, you know, certainly has its, you know, it has its place and I, I enjoy it. But um, when you come in from a day of saltwater fishing, you're exhausted. You usually take a nap. When you come home from freshwater fishing, you're refreshed. That, that's the best way I can put it. Yeah, it's really neat. I we have a pond in our neighborhood, and I love taking my boys out and fishing after dinner. I think it's a ton of fun, and um, so I I kind of share that uh, that love of bluegill and largemouth bass. How is the angling experience on the freshwater different in Florida than other parts of the country? Um, I would say that probably the biggest difference that I would say I, it's it's not uncommon even in the summer for me to fish a popper all day long. Um, we, we don't have a lot of, uh, it's usually thought of as being, you know, low light early and late. Um, but here I, it's, it's really shade and not shade. So if I can find a, a shady shoreline at one o'clock in the afternoon, I'm pretty sure I can catch some fish, um, fishing under lily pads. We have a lot of lily pads and, uh, some great, great swampy kinds of places and the fish eat all day. It, it, it's pretty, pretty interesting. We don't have a lot of deep water. It's, you know, in the, in the places that I fish anyway. Um, so the fish just find shade. Yeah. And, and since you have, I guess, probably a longer season, are the fish larger in Florida, kind of like they are in Texas and Mexico and places like that? They are not necessarily the ones that I catch, but I mean, certainly, you know, at Lake Okeechobee or, you know, someplace it's not uncommon to catch nine and 10 pound fish, you know, and, you know, for me, an 18 inches, uh, 18 inch, bass is a you know that's that's my favorite you know we get them bigger sometimes on flies but you know it's pretty easy to catch big ones on shiners and live bait that sort of thing but for fly fishing you know we we get a lot in the you know the 15 to 18 inch range and to me that's a you know the i I judge them a little differently uh rather than the the size i i love to look at them i mean to me a 
a 15 inch bass that's shaped like a torpedo is, is a real trophy. It's, I, I just marvel at them when I, when I see them. Yeah. And also there's that pretty different, there's different shades of green. I think it's just amazing too. Yeah. We have a couple of uh, all the, all bass down here are Florida strain bass. Um, that's all that they're allowed to stock. Um, we, there's a, a type of strain, one strain, which I call a canal bass. So that's probably not accurate, but they're very dark on the back and very kind of buttery on the, on the bottom. And those are, they're just magnificent fish. And they, they fight, I believe differently than Northern bass. Um, maybe a little more like a smallmouth. On top of that, we, we have some, we have a lot of stuff down here. We have Oscars and cichlids. We have exotics, uh, peacock bass, which were actually planted here. It's not an invasive. Um, but, uh, it's not uncommon when we fish the freshwater Everglades, uh, to catch nine species of fish a day. Yeah, that's real. That's really neat. And, you know, uh, also folks know you as an outdoor writer. When did the writing bug hit you? Uh, I don't know that it ever did. <laughs> I, uh, my, uh, it, it, um, you know, my background's advertising. So I've always written headlines and written ads and that sort of stuff. Uh, I never thought of myself as a writer. I never, you know, anything more than a paragraph. I didn't even, didn't even consider. Um, I, uh, when things got really slow in the advertising business of, uh, you know, well, probably 15 years ago, I, uh, I put together some sound. I thought, you know, my wife asked me, what would, what would you like to do if you could do anything? And so I'd like to illustrate and write, you know, fishing articles or whatever. I don't even think I said, right. But, um, so I, I did some illustrations of, of different things, you know, knots and that sort of stuff and sent them out to all the, all the magazine, um, editors. And, and, uh, I got a call from Jay Nichols at uh, Stackpole and he saw one of the, uh, the knots and he goes, would you be interested in illustrating a knot book? And I said, well, sure, that'd be, that'd be great. We talked for about 45 minutes and about knots and that kind of stuff. He goes, yeah, he goes, you know, this stuff pretty well. Why don't you just write the book? And I said, I'm not really a writer. He said, I tell you what, you write it and I'll fix it. And that's what, that's, that was my first writing, uh, assignment. So I, I wrote two books, uh, one essential knots and rigs for trout and essential knots and rigs for saltwater. That's pretty neat. So your first uh, writing assignment was a book, and I'm sure you got paid for it too. I did, yeah, and, and continue to do so. So that's that's really nice. It's been it's been a, a as far as you know fishing books go, it's been pretty successful. Yeah, I, I know for a fact I've got your knot book on my uh, bookcase behind me here in my office. Yeah, it's the the process for me is is it, it's it's a little bit different. Um, I, I don't really do a, an outline or something. I love doing the casting articles I've done. I work quite a bit with uh, fly fisherman magazine. And, um, when I get an idea, you know, what, what I do first is I do sketches and then I do illustrations and then I write about them. So I, I really, uh, the best advice I could give somebody if they want to be an outdoor writer is learn to draw. Uh, it makes it, a, it makes it really appealing to, uh, to an editor, if, if everything, you know, if you're a great photographer or if you're a good illustrator or something, it, it really pushes your, your story along, really makes it a lot more appealing. Yeah, that's pretty neat. So you really kind of work backwards from the storyboards that you create. Absolutely backwards. Absolutely. Yeah. 
and so in terms of, you know, we'll, we'll use writing and obviously it's, it's different process for you than from a lot of other folks. Do you, is that something that you try to do in the off season or do you kind of try to work it into your kind of, uh, you know, weekly routine? Um, no, I do it when I have something to write about, when I have something that, uh, you know, that the, the last one I did for, um, for fly fisherman magazine was called no fly zone. And it was basically how not to hit other people with your fly, how to be, you know, courteous in the boat. And that came from me getting hit in the head with a fly from someone. So, um, <laughs> it was like, okay, this needs to be addressed. And so that was, uh, um, yeah. yeah, you know, one day I, I had, uh, I, I lost a couple of, uh, well, I had somebody out and we lost a couple of flies and, and I came back and I wrote an article called the rules of disengagement and it's 10 ways to get your fly out of the, out of the tree. So we, we left a lot hanging in the tree that day, but, but never again. So. Well, that's, that's neat. So it's really not a, it's kind of a, a situational thing. It's kind of like getting hit by lightning and then it, that's when you need to write the article as opposed to kind of collecting things and then sitting down and cranking out articles. It is. Yeah. It is that. Yeah. You know, and, and I know too, you know, I think you're probably best known for being a casting instructor and a teaching guide. Can you tell us a little bit about how you kind of gravitated from uh, fishing farm ponds in Indiana to becoming a casting instructor and a teaching guide? Yeah. You know what? I have, uh, I, I never would have ever considered, you know, that teaching is an occupation for me, but there's nothing I love more than, than teaching people to fly cast. Um, I love the, I love progress. I love how I love to watch somebody transform in just a couple of hours or maybe less in some cases. Um, I just have always sort of, uh, you know, help people here and there and that sort of stuff. When I, when I moved to Florida, um, I met Norm Ziegler, uh, who owns a fly shop out on Sanibel and wrote the book snook on a fly. And, and, um, he started a, a, a shop and, uh, he, it sort of started out. It's like, Hey, you know, this guy wants to learn to fly fish. Would you help him? And, uh, it just, it just took off from there. And I now do about, I, I would guess about 200 private lessons a year and some, you know, clinics and that sort of thing. I, I much prefer one-on-one rather than, than a large group. Um, I, I just, I just really enjoy that, that one-on-one or, you know, maybe two people, something like that. No, it makes a lot of sense. And it, you know, I've, I've seen you do your casting demonstrations like at the Virginia fly fishing and wine festival and seen some of your stuff online. And I think one of the really interesting things is you're, you have a very practical kind of non dogmatic approach to casting instruction. Um, in the sense of, you know, there are a lot of people that it's like, this is how you have to do it. And if you don't do it this way, it's the wrong way. And there's some things I noticed kind of in your casting style that are, they're just different from kind of traditional approaches to teaching casting like your index finger on top you know your right foot forward um you know casting with the tip right and and i'm just kind of curious you know as you were on your casting journey when did you sort of break away from that orthodoxy and make that style your own yeah it you know it really started um you know some of it was just little things over the years i when i was 18 years old i I cut my finger at a, at a job that I had. So my pinky doesn't bend. So the, the finger on top grip was always a natural for me. It just, it was just more comfortable to hold it that way because my, you know, the pinky was essentially useless in casting. And uh, then in, 
I had a guy one time that I met at a sports show, a guy named Don Atkinson, a good friend of mine now, but uh, I met him and he, you know, he came up and he said, oh yeah, I used to fly fish, but I had shoulder surgery. And, you know, he'd been all the great places. He'd been Seychelles and, and Russia and all this, all this stuff. But, uh, um, he said, yeah, but I don't do it anymore because I don't, you know, my, I can't move my, I said, oh, you know what, come over. I'll, you know, we'll do a lesson. And then I kind of panicked because I thought, okay, this guy's going to come to my house and I'm going to, I'm going to send him to the hospital or something. So I spent two days, he was coming over on a, on a Wednesday, I spent two days out in my yard thinking, okay, if I had, you know, this limited range of motion, how would I cast? And I noticed as I was doing this, my casting got better and sharper and more concise. You know, I'm just everything about it. And I thought and it got easier. And I thought, well, yeah, and that was really the start of that. Um, so uh, from then on, I just became obsessed with how do I get the most out of the rod and the least out of me? Um, you know, there's a, there's a saying that if you want to find the easiest way to do something, give it to the laziest person. Well, I, I am the laziest person. I can tell you that. So, um, <laughs> and you know, obviously your clients are believers when, uh, you show them and, you know, I, I, I rewatch preparing for this interview, your casting demonstration, I think from two years ago, um, at, at the Virginia fly fishing and wine festival, how do you make, um, let's just say more traditional casting instructors, believers, um, I, I, you know, I guess by demonstration, I, I mean, I, I love hanging out with, uh, you know, uh, other, other good casters and discussing things and sharing things. I learn something all the time. It, um, you know, I think just what I get a lot of times is, you know, people say, boy, it looks so easy when you do that. It looks, you know, effortless when you do that. And if, if you want to learn to do that, I'm not saying it's the right way. I'm saying, I think it's probably the easiest way. Um, and that's what I like to do. But I, the other thing, the real challenge I think is when you have a student, all of us move differently. And sometimes it's, it's working with that person where they are, you know, maybe this person's arm doesn't move the way mine does. So we got to figure out what's right for him. You know, how, how best they can make that, that line move back and forth. Yeah, that's interesting. I know that was a big part of kind of lefties casting philosophy was that we all weren't built the same, so we all shouldn't necessarily cast the same. Right. Yeah. yeah. I would say that if you're if you're getting the line where you want it to go and you're having a good time, then you're probably doing it the right way. If you want to if you want to do it farther, you want to do it easier, then I can probably help with that. Otherwise, I'd say just go fishing there you go. And, you know, you, you, you know, you became a guide as well. Was that an outgrowth of looking for a bigger classroom setting or was there another reason that you wanted to become a fishing guide? Yeah. And, you know, and I'm always really quick to say that we had an expression back in Indiana, a gentleman farmer, somebody that, that kind of farmed, they had a, they had a farm, but, you know, sort of, you know, did it at a leisurely pace. I am a gentleman fishing guide. Um, so it's, it's not, it's not what I do every day for a living. It's what I, uh, my, uh, clients are typically people who take a lesson and we do a lesson. And the next logical step is to put that into action out on the water. Now, my guiding's a little bit different because of the expectation. Um, it's the focus, what I always tell people that, you know, you're, when we get back to the ramp, you're going to be better than when we start that that's a guarantee. Uh, that's a given. Whether we catch anything in the meantime is who knows. And so with that expectation, it, t- it takes the pressure 
off of um, the the fishing part. Uh, I, I can always teach them. We can always pick up tips. The places that I go when I uh, when I guide are very technical uh, places. For example, uh, one place I go, Lake Webb, has a lot of lily pads and it has these really nice trails through the lily pads that kind of zigzag through. And one thing that we do is contour casting. We throw some curve casts around some stumps and we go through the lily pads. We throw under under the willows. Um, those kinds of things. Whether they catch something, they probably will. But but the satisfaction of making that cast and putting it in the right spot is um, very, very rewarding. And is that something that, you know, you, you people will come to you and say, Hey, I want to work on a, B and C let's go out and work on that. Or are you kind of taking a more expansive, you know, cause I guess what I would call a traditional fishing guide, they can teach too, but generally they may be a little bit more focused on putting fish in the boat. How, how do you kind of determine your, um, your curriculum for your day on the water? Um, you know, typically, uh, well, a lot of times people will call and they say, well, you know, I can, I can cast, you know, whatever 80 feet, but I just need to work on my double haul. Well, the truth of the matter is there's probably more to it than that. And, you know, of course I'd say, yeah, we'll, we'll do that and that'll be great. But, but a lot of times I find out that the problems are a little bit more on the fundamental side than, than, uh, you know, the, the higher, the, you know, the hauling and that sort of thing. And, and, you know, in terms of bringing new people to the sport, you know, Joe, what kind of suggestions do you have for how to introduce, uh, people in general, but maybe even specifically children, uh, to fly fishing? So here's the thing about kids is, and I get, I get some kids that, you know, their parents will say, well, you know, is, is, you know, is, is a too young? Well, it's not too young if the kid has the interest and if he has, you know, and, or, you know, again, it's finding out where, you know, what his, you know, intensity level is, I guess. So, um, one of my, one of my good fishing buddies is eight years old, a guy named, kid named Elias. And he, uh, I learned more from him. I get the enthusiasm and, uh, you know, uh, from him, what I've, what I've learned is, and what I've, from having my own boys, the goal should be at the end of the day, the, that, that kid needs to say, that was a great time. I, I want to, I want to do that again. Now, in the meantime, they probably, you know, it's important to know that sometimes you stop the boat and explore an island, or maybe it's time to throw rocks, throw sticks, or, you know, get out on the sandbar and go crazy in the water. That's all part of it. And that's what, that's what I, I try and tell parents. It's like, you know what? Okay. It's, it, we'll teach him to cast, you know, he will, we'll get, we'll get him or her to, you know, get the fly where they need to do it. But keep in mind, they're not, their motivation isn't the same as yours. It probably isn't important to them that they catch a 20 inch rainbow today. They're probably, you know, if they come back and they say, that was a great time, that, that was a successful trip. Got it. And how does that approach change as you start teaching adults? I, you know, I don't think, I don't think it should. <laughs> I think, I think that, that, you know, it's like, if you're not having a good time, put the rod down and, you know, you know, whatever, you know, take some pictures or something like that. Um, sometimes the, the hardest people I think to teach, um, and I've had, I've had several of them and that's the guy that retires and his wife gets him a fly rod and says, here, you need a hobby. Uh, you know, the poor guy doesn't know why he's got this thing or why he's doing it, but okay. Um, the easiest people are probably people that transition from other kinds of fishing because when they see something, when they see a, 
you know, maybe a, a curve cast or something like that, this light goes on their head and they, and they say, Oh, I, I know exactly where I'm going to use this, or I know exactly how I'm going to apply that, um, that technique. Yeah, that's neat. I guess I've had a similar experience with the project healing water guys, you know, even if they haven't fly fish before you start seeing that light bulb go off. Uh, when you talk about, you know, remember when you were a kid and you went fly fish or when you went fishing. Yeah. Yeah. We have a down in Southwest Florida, the, we, we have a, a project healing waters, uh, chapter down here and, and the guys, it's, it's amazing how quickly they pick it up and, uh, how, how much fun it is for them. Even when they haven't really done it before. So, yeah. And, and who are some of the folks, Joe, that have influenced you in your guiding career? You know, um, th- there's a fellow down the, in the Everglades, uh, captain John hand. And, um, you know, John's been great. He's been guiding for, uh, I, years and, uh, you know, it, it really has a lot to do. He, I always say that fishing with John is like fishing with the farmer's almanac. Um, you know, you, you know, certainly, you know, a great fly fishing guide and, and instructor, but the stuff that he knows about the area, the stuff that he knows about the birds and stuff that he, you know, that, that, that to me, it really rounds out the whole experience. Um, and, you know, Pilot Island Sound, with a good uh, friend of mine, Blake Matherly is just, a, just the nicest gentleman out on the water. And, you know, I, I'm always quick to recommend him to people and they always uh, come back and say that was just a you know a great day even when the fishing's not great you know the, the they'll learn things they they come back to the ramp with things they didn't have when they got on the boat that's that's the best way i can put it no it's interesting because i it's funny because i have similar conversations with friends about you know sometimes you can have a great guide day and you may not catch any or many fish um you know and it's uh you know, it's always, always say the, the guide's job is the denominator and the angler's job is the numerator. And sometimes the denominator is just not very big. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 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 I think, you know, I think that when you come back, uh, you know, the, the best trips I've had haven't been the best fish days. Um, you know, it's, it's the days that you, you come back with some great memories. Yeah, I, I agree. And, you know, I, another tradition we have on the Articulate Flies, I have to always ask um, all of my guests that guide to share what they think the biggest misconception people have about the life of a fishing guide. Huh, that's an interesting one. Um, I, I'd say that I that maybe not understand the hours that, that go beyond the fishing. Um, you know, typically coming by and mine's a little bit different as I, as I said, because I'm, I'm kind of a gentleman guide. I do it, you know, when the, you know, when, when I want to do it essentially, um, but doing it day to day after day, um, there's a lot to do. There's time flies at night. There's cleaning the boat down. There's, um, you know, fixing fly lines, putting new leaders on, uh, all that sort of stuff. So it really, it really goes on a little bit, um, longer than you might think. Yeah. Those guys put in long days, you know, particularly when you've got to run, uh, you know, to and from the clients plus get ready, you know, before and after for sure. And, you know, one thing I know too, Joe, is it, uh, you helped design a series of rods with the folks at Riley Rod Crafters. How did that relationship come about? That right, that came about. I was working with uh, with New Canoe, the kayak company. At, at uh, one point, we they had a booth at uh, Virginia Wine Festival, and I I went. I was doing a talk on 
on fly fishing from a kayak. And, uh, I, I had a, a rod. I, I don't even remember what it was. And, uh, I got done. I walked off of the, the, the casting pond there and Chuck Kraft who just passed away a few weeks ago, uh, sadly, um, came up to me and he had a rod in his hand. He said, he goes, he says, that was a, that was a right fine program, young man. He goes, here, next time use this rod. And he hands me the Riley rod CK series, the Chuck craft series. And, uh, and I said, sure, fine. So I, I did the next one. And I, I can tell you that that was the sweetest casting rod I've ever, I've ever held. And that was the CK seven weight. And, uh, so, yep. And, and so time went on and Chris Riley and I got to be friends and, uh, I had, I, I was using the CK and, uh, I don't even know how it came up, but, uh, but the, the, the idea was that I would design a, some rods. Now, when I say design rods, I'm going to, uh, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to put a disclaimer. I, I didn't do any math. I didn't do any, uh, I, I really don't know that stuff. I, I mean, I know a little bit about how rods are constructed, but, um, what I told Chris was, I said, you know, I've always, I've always enjoyed slower action rods. I, and I, I, I've always liked to teach with slower action rods. I know I get a, I, I know I, people learn faster and, uh, and even, even experienced fishermen, I think probably, um, do really well with, with slower action. So I told Chris, I want a rod that casts like they did 20 years ago that dampen like today's rods. And that's what we did. That's where we ended up with the, uh, with the, uh, the series, the, uh, lily pad and, and the cypress. Got it. I'm kind of bummed out. Cause I was going to ask you what your favorite CAD program was. <laughs> my favorite what your cad program oh yeah no i would no idea <laughs> yeah i just i just don't know that stuff i got to pick out some cool colors and maybe most importantly i got to design the grip which uh, i have always for years um when i was a kid i had a, a old bamboo rod that had a flat spot on the cork and i always loved that and so i over the years i would take sandpaper and and file down the corks on my, on my rods. And so this, this came about and I asked Chris, I said, can we put a flat spot on there? The, the thinking is, or what I believe happens is that your finger is cylindrical and the cork is cylindrical. So there's always a balancing act going on, uh, with a flat spot. You have a, you have a solid platform to apply the power. And I, I, I cast with my finger on top, although it works just as well with your, with your thumb, either, either way is right. And it gave us a nice place to put, uh, to put the little, my little alligator logo on there. So, um, I use the, I use the six weight, the lily pad, the five, six for just about everything I do. And then in saltwater, I use the, uh, the seven, eight, um, Cypress. Very cool. And kind of stepping back just a little bit, you know, how do those rods dovetail with your casting and your teaching philosophy? Yeah. So generally what I see or oftentimes what I see is that when people show up, they'll have a rod that maybe they've, uh, that they bought is that's just way too fast for them. Um, and there's certainly a place for that. If you're, you know, fishing for bonefish and, you know, high winds and that kind of stuff, there's nothing better than having a super fast rod. Um, for day-to-day fishing, it's probably maybe not the best choice. So, um, when I get somebody, when I, a lot of times I'll get, if I know that I, if I get the rod in their hand, they're probably going to do a little better. Um, there's, a, you know, a lot of times people will, will actually order them or, or want to buy one. Um, so 
for me, it was, there, there were some rods back in the, uh, that I've had over the years that I just get a better result from people. And that, that's really where that, um, really helps with the, with the action. Yeah. It also kind of keeps you from going down that rabbit hole of over and underlining rods too. Yeah. I would say, you know, I, I, I tend, if anything, I, I underline the, uh, the rods, if, if like on my, on the five, six weight, you know, the five weight really works better for a dry fly action. You know, six weight works better for throwing poppers, that sort of thing. But, uh, rarely do people ever underline the rods. They, they overline them because they like that feel, but, um, it's kind of a feel good feature. It doesn't, doesn't really help. No, absolutely. And I know, you know, that you do a lot of teaching, you know, in addition to your private lessons, I know you, I think you probably monthly or weekly are offering classes at Bass Pro just in kind of general fishing knowledge, but also tying. How is COVID-19 impacting your ability to kind of get out and reach, uh, reach all of your students? Well, I've canceled everything. I had, I, I think I had nine charters scheduled, eight or nine. And, um, and those were all, you know, people that just didn't get on an airplane that just canceled, which, you know, it's, it's fine. I, I canceled light lessons because I tend to, you know, I mean, the, just the nature of, of that, you're pretty close to somebody. So um, the classes at Bass Pro that uh, we do tying on Wednesday night, and then I, I do a, uh, a casting demo uh, the first Saturday of every month. And that that's all canceled. Uh, there's just, it's just too high risk, I think. Yeah, I imagine the best thing to do is to just kind of reach out to you um, by email to see when they come back online, because it seems like the new normal these days is basically everything's closed until we tell you that it's not. <laughs> right. Yeah. So I'm always available for, for over-the-phone advice or, um, uh, you know, the emails, that sort of thing. Should we encourage people to send you videos of casting? <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I got nothing to do. I'm sitting here twiddling my thumbs here for the next couple of weeks. So yeah, uh, um, yeah. Download Coach's Eye or something like that, folks, and you can uh, you can you know, or just use your phone or your iPad, and uh, you can tape yeah. yourself casting, and you can learn a ton uh, just by having a buddy do that with you. Yeah, you know it. It is. It, it's great. I I I enjoy doing lessons with two people um, because when it's interesting how when when two people leave how each one of them will have different takeaways. And so that, you know, husband and wife or, you know, something like that, it's, I think it's very beneficial. Um, and you know, it's, uh, it's also kind of a fun, you know, it gives you a little person, a little bit of, uh, relief. So it's not, they're not just constantly being, you know, watched or whatever. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's nice to be able to work on something and kind of get a break and then come back and get a little bit more instruction. Um, and so, you know, while we're kind of in this holding pattern, um, you know, why don't you let folks know where they can find you on the internet so that when you're back in action, they can, uh, reach out to you and get a lesson, uh, or book you for a, a day on the water. Absolutely. They can find me at, uh, dot com. It's Joe, M-A-H-L-E-R.com. Joe at joemahler.com is my email. And if they want to watch a video, if they've got 45 minutes to kill, it's, uh, uh, if they if they go onto YouTube and look up effortless fly casting, uh, that that was a a video that uh, that my friend Debbie Hansen held her cell phone up in the air for forty five minutes, just as steady as can be, and that was at the uh, Virginia show. 
Yeah. And the audio was really good. I'll drop that in the show notes to the episode so people can find it because it's super helpful. Um, and it's a, it's a good investment for just under 45 minutes. I think you've got a couple thousand downloads now, Joe. Is that right? Yeah. I haven't looked at it for a while. Oh, so good. Yeah. Yeah. A couple good. thousand, couple thousand downloads. Cause I, uh, I brought my youngest son in to, uh, to watch it, uh, while I was getting ready for our interview. And I was like, I think it had close to 2000. Well, great. Yeah, it's all good. And I will try to push it, get you another five, 500 or so uh, out of this episode. Um, I, uh, I appreciate you spending some time with me this afternoon. And uh, it's really been a lot of fun. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a blast. Thanks so much. Okay. Okay. Take care now. You too. Well, folks, I hope you enjoyed that interview as much as we enjoy bringing it to you. Again, a shout out to this episode's sponsor, the folks at Bristol Bay Defense Fund. Go visit www.bristolbaydefensefund.com and donate today. And again, if you like the podcast, please tell a friend, subscribe in the podcatcher of your choice, and leave us a review. Thanks, everybody. Tight lines. Tight lines.